Citycast from Explicity. I was born in a multilingual context and I love words. And I love words not in order to use them myself, but I love words because every word shows me a whole universe. I mean if I start peeling it off, unearthing it, it takes me back to several eras. So I use the word Indian civilization. Then it takes me to uh, something like civil in Latin. And I imagine how would the cities, the Roman cities be. And what would be the love affairs and wars there? What would be the jealousies and human emotions, exchanges? What would be the smells and sounds? And out of that, how new words came. I feel fascinated. I do not mind if I do not get food or money to live. But if I am left in a world without even one word, I would be the most miserable. As a curious and casual reader of linguistics, one of the first things that I learned is there's no monolithic object called a single language. Languages are like a living organism. They grow, and sometimes they are set to die. And sometimes, like humans, they disappear into a bureaucracy. The concept of age and origins of language are not straightforward because languages evolve gradually over time and their origins are often shrouded in prehistory. So, to determine that a particular language is pure or that another one is the world's oldest is to make specious determination. And naturally, deriving from everything else specious, such assumptions lead to contention. And then, the idea of linguistic age can vary depending on how one defines it, whether by the emergence of a common ancestor language or by early written records, or some other criteria, and so it goes. And although one's language is the closest expression of one's identity, the more we learn, the more we will learn to temper our assumptions with a generous measure of I don't know. This is exceptionally true of India. There is possibly no other landmass that offers up such an overgrowth of languages, dialects, and linguistic surprises, as India does. All Indians know that we have a diverse linguistic landscape, but very few of us understand how astonishingly diverse. My guest today is the remarkable Professor Ganesh Devi, one of India's foremost intellectuals, a linguist, a literary critic, and a cultural activist, renowned for his pioneering work in documenting endangered languages, and championing linguistic and cultural diversity in India. He is the author of several books. He is the principal behind the Mammoth People's Linguistic Survey of India, or PLSI, and the winner of national awards, including the Sahitya Academy Award and the Padma Shri. Professor Devi's passion for language extends to his deep concerns about the pitfalls of turning language into a political weapon or football. His idea of political activism is quite real. He lives it. To bring about the PLSI, he traveled over 300 times across India to search for more languages. He paid for his trips using money that he earned by delivering lectures. His extensive travel and the time that he spent living among tribal communities is a testament 
to his commitment, as is his returning the Sahitya Academy Award in protest after the tragic killing of M.M. Kalburgi. His most recent work is the book The Indians, Histories of a Civilization, a dazzling project that maps the history and the evolution of the peoples of India. Written by over 100 scholars, it maps every region of the country and speaks of Indian human heritage of 12,000 years from the Ice Age to the present. And this book details all of that in a little less than 700 pages, making it accessible for everyone, even those with the most modest curiosity. You've probably heard of Professor Ganesh Devi, but if you have not, it's a very good idea to learn more about someone who has pretty much made it his life's mission to unearth, protect, and foster the plurality that makes India, India. And now, joining me from somewhere on the road, as he always is, Professor Ganesh Devi, welcome to the Literary City. It's a joy to be here with you. To jump straight to the People's Linguistic Survey of India, would you say that is your magnum opus to date? And how did you get started? Uh, I had no specific desire or aim to be a writer or a scholar. Things kept happening to me and uh, uh, most of my work was done because it had to be done and uh, not because I wanted to produce a scholarly text. And uh, when I had done one text, I knew that I was already uh, one foot in the next crisis, next text, next action. But uh, the People's Linguistic Survey has a body. Uh, it is a weighty publication in terms of kilograms. <laughs> it's literally, I mean, 50 volumes. Yes. Uh, some volumes are three books, two books. Mm -hmm. And it looks nice. It looks uh, almost uh, intimidating uh, sometimes to me when I look at those books. <laughs> but what it has done to the languages uh, is amazing. In languages which were wiped out of memory, uh, nation's memory by the census of 1971, mm -hmm. have resurfaced suddenly. I mean, it's like uh, you see some fellow, uh, fellow, uh, fellow ground uh, where there used to be flowers uh, in uh, good old days. And uh, one uh, winter, I mean, one uh, monsoon, you suddenly start seeing those flowers come up. Is that kind of joy that I have in looking at the linguistic survey of India. Uh, so languages which people uh, had completely, uh, which the nation had completely forgotten, uh, which uh, the surrounding languages felt had gone down and under forever. Uh, and they rise from their graves and start speaking. That's, uh, that's a fantastic experience. For it seems like it. Uh, so I'm not looking at that as uh, my achievement, uh, but uh, I can say I have a, a great sense of uh, satisfaction, uh, a sense of fulfillment in having done that. Quite justifiably, if I may. Now, you said that you were triggered in the difference of classification of mother tongues between the 1961 and the 1971 census, where... Upwards of 1,500 languages had been classified as item 109, other. And when you mapped all those missing languages, you found that they were in a band across the middle of the country, and you expressed it in some interview as a natural sort of divide between the Indo-Aryan languages of the north of India 
and the Dravidic languages of the South. As you pursue the People's Linguistic Survey of India, what other surprising things did you find? It throws some light on the history not known. Right. Uh, when Homo sapiens arrived here in South Asia, uh, they went on camping and forming clans, small groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, over hundreds of years, those small groups developed their own languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was give and take between these clans. For instance, uh, some uh, groups went from South India all the way to Balochistan and took their language there. And similarly, some Austric languages came to India. So, uh, before the arrival of Sanskrit, which is the mother of Indo-Aryan languages, and uh, one is uh, thinking of the time, say about 1500 years before Christ, to be precise, 1400 years before Christ, uh, 3500 years before present. So, prior to that moment, uh, why did not the languages of the clans in the north and languages of the clans in the south form a uh, consortium, uh, if not a family, at least uh, uh, at least a, a community of languages. And why not? That is that is still unanswered. Genetics uh, tells us that all of us come from the same source. Mm-hmm. We as a population uh, come from the same ancestors, whether. There is some difference between the ancestries in the north and ancestries in the south, but that is difference only on, on the side of fathers and not on the side of our mothers, ancient mothers. Right, yes. So the connections between the north and the south are lost after the arrival of the Sanskrit language in India. And why did that happen? What's the reason? That is that reason, the presence of tribal languages in the central belt. Yes, I see. So knowing about the tribal languages in the central belt uh, now has given us uh, some data which can help in a future date uh, resolving this mystery about our past before our uh, proto-history. For example... Uh, why why did India uh, chance upon the use of zero and why did India turn zero into a philosophical concept? Mm-hmm. Uh, or why did we accept uh, having many gods uh, in, uh, though the idea of God essentially means that it is the ultimate power and why did we think of the ultimate not in terms of unity but in terms of diversity? Mm-hmm. Those are questions not asked of Indian philosophies, Indian darshanas till today. Uh, we just taken the descriptions of those uh, philosophical schools uh, as uh, uh, the essence of those schools. But the essence of the schools, uh, which uh, actually harp on diversity, showcase diversity, eulogize diversity, uh, has to have a foundation somewhere. That foundation is hidden uh, in our prehistory, that is history prior to first first millennium before Christ, prior to that time, it is hidden in that time. And there, uh, uh, in uh, in times when Sanskrit had not arrived, Indo-Aryan had not evolved here, in those times, there had to be a linguistic presence, a linguistic force, a linguistic pressure, a linguistic dissemination 
uh, and a linguistic exchange and uh, uh, many things might have happened uh, which we have compressed in a somewhat hackneyed way as puranas or whatever or myths and that's one reason why myth is still alive in india a myth remains alive in a country only so long as the country does not know sufficiently well about its entire history i guess that is the same thing with news in the absence of verifiable fact rumor becomes the news yes now the plsi is a vast and mammoth exercise and i simply don't have the time to ask you every question that i want to ask you but i will urge listeners to google people's linguistic survey of india there's a rich and vast amount of information out there but i do have a couple of remnant questions and one of them concerns george grierson's linguistic survey of india which was carried out in the late 19th century and uh, published somewhere in the early 20th century your work picks up from grierson's work doesn't it and similar to him you traveled extensively but more importantly you were able to cobble together the efforts of 3500 people a voluntary network of scholars teachers activists bus drivers regular folks and nothing captures the spirit of community as a few interesting anecdotes surrounding this particularly one that i liked is about the driver in orissa who was an amateur linguist who noted down new words he heard during his extensive travels yes is i mean grierson had to travel in bullock carts by the way hmm. uh, trains were there right but not uh, as many as uh, would allow him to go to every part of the country right so he he decided to send a notice a circular to all school teachers to contribute interesting and it is his school teachers uh, uh, army that uh, enabled him to do this and uh, unfortunately for him he was asked to retire from services before he could complete the work so he had to carry all the papers to london very worked on those papers for the next 26 years after retirement uh, i mean crazy people do this <laughs> uh, in my case uh, this uh, driver from orissa had come with somebody to a workshop i had convened in uh, bhubneshwar and uh, uh, he sat there uh, during lunch i asked him to join and uh, i noticed that he was listening to the discussion with great interest so i asked a little question about would he know of some language other than his own so he took he had a, a shoulder bag he took a note notebook out of that bag and he said sir i had been a driver to district collectors that is that, that was his designation car driver and collectors go to uh, district magistrates go to uh, rural areas once a week that is part of their uh, regulations and i had no work so i used to go around and ask people for words various words and it become a hobby and in the process uh since he was also transferred in his uh, service he was posted in three different districts so he had collected words from three languages 
and as uh, as pastime he used to compare those words group them together he had evolved his own taxonomy uh, not knowing at all that he was actually devising grammars for these three languages in oris fascinating which incidentally very few other scholars had any knowledge knowledge about then there was this very interesting bit from uh, your introduction to the plsi about the gondali tribe of maharashtra who actually developed the ability to phonetically sign language and you tested this by having two groups of people out of earshot yes and whispering something in an alien language to one and they signed and the group at the other side were able to accurately reproduce exactly what was said to the first group yeah the gondalis in maharashtra have developed a script script i call it a script okay uh, which uh, uh, which need not be written on any surface it can be written in air so uh, if you whisper one word of belong a sentence belonging to let's say mandarin uh, which they don't understand or spanish which they don't understand uh, that fellow uh, waves his uh, fingers hands in air another person from his team standing some 250 or 300 feet away who can only see and cannot hear at all what you whisper into his ears can actually decipher and produce exactly the same sentence in the same accent same speed uh, it is amazing unbelievable but when i was thinking about this i felt that after all language also i mean while i am speaking to you though this is through virtual means Uh, it is uh, it is air that carries my words and if if language uh, which is the substance and scripts are the image of scripts are images of that substance if the substance itself can be produced in air and can be conveyed through air why can't the image of that substance also be similarly produced in air any history of this i have a feeling that before paper came in, into use in india and in other countries in india it uh, came in circulation around the 12th century that's right there may be many languages which people perhaps uh, were writing in air in a non paper medium and everybody did not have a tree bark or silk or sandalwood to write or mm-hmm. or, or stone carving was not easily possible for right. daily communications like when one says well i am hungry or i got a headache uh, that is, need not be carved like ashoka's inscriptions so uh, movements of uh, arms conveying precise letters phonemes mm-hmm. and uh, that is to bring the spoken phoneme as close as to the script which represent those phonemes uh, that capability many communities may have developed in the past i'd like to speak now about your personal <clears throat> trajectory with language now you've written on the social significance of uh, language and the impact that it has and i'm going to quote from a fairly long period of your writing first i read this in volume 1 of the plsi as a part of your introduction those who can give or receive knowledge tend to acquire a certain authority in a given society and what should really have been a means of knowing becomes a means of social control 
I also read your books, After Amnesia and The Crisis Within. And what I got from After Amnesia was the tension between the traditional, which is the legacy of uh, colonialism, and change, which is the need to adapt to the evolving literary or linguistic landscape in India. And finally, you quoted Freud's theory of the mind saying, and this is about cultural amnesia, I quote, Amnesia did not pertain as much to the loss of memory as to its ritual suppression through age-old tools of oppression and the assertion of cultural hegemony. Now, this sort of all cycles back to the original words that you wrote about uh, cultural amnesia. Uh, I'm surprised at my consistency. <laughs> I had no it's aim to be funny. consistent. I had <laughs> no... Uh, actually, I, I recall, I was very young in those years when I wrote After Amnesia. I was about 35 or 36 when I started writing it. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I did not imagine that anybody would find it of uh, interest at all. So I left uh, I left aside the uh, manuscript. And in, in those years, I used to live in a small um, house, ground floor flat in Baroda with an open veranda, it opened onto the street. And I used to sit with my typewriter in the veranda, uh, talking to the people who passed by huh. on one side and to my my uh, family inside the house. Mm -hmm. And to my, I was also talking to the paper in my typewriter. So I was engaged in three conversations at the same time. <laughs> Seen that way. And then I, one day I started laughing at myself when I when I saw what I was doing. I said, uh, "How come these three traditions sit together?" So I called the the people who were the uh, people walking and doing things in in the street outside my house. I call that the Margi tradition. Right. My own house I call the Desi tradition. <laughs> And because I was typing on Olivet tea, I called that me in the veranda as Videsi tradition. <laughs> that became the uh, backbone of my argument in Afghanistan. I, I get it now. So, uh, it, I mean, I, 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 it literally happened in my case. I was, I, I was not aware that I was writing anything profound at all. I was only responding to the mundane, everyday reality surrounding me. And, that's what I done every time I done any work. Uh, I'm responding to the, the political situation or uh, the social situation surrounding me. Uh, I have no pretension of being an intellectual. Oh, I doubt anyone will take your side in that debate. Now, in the introduction to the podcast, you spoke eloquently about your love of words. So let me hit you with one. There is one word that fascinates me because I believe that this word has caused more havoc to the history of the world than any other word. And that word is Aryan. And you have a rather interesting deconstruction of its etymology. Aha, uh -huh. okay. Uh, fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is a, there is a grammatical category in every language which is called intimate personal pronoun. I mean pronouns are you, I, wish, he, she, it, etc. 
the intimate personal pronoun uh, say in english we use uh, words like one or sometimes you when when we uh, use the sentence uh, but you went to the gateway of india and did not find the bhelwalas there and there you don't does not mean you or but one uh, a person uh, the dravidic languages tamil in particular has a person intimate personal pronoun called arya 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 okay that went all the way to iran and in iranian it became arya as a personal pronoun uh, which means uh, hey hey you arya that came into sanskrit and uh, sanskrit uh, the sanskrit language uh, use bho arya hey you uh, are bhai bho arya that is so interesting but also benign how did it morph into something so contentious uh, when in the 18th century uh, william jones was talking about sanskrit language as being related to greek and latin and persian at some in the distant uh, time in the past he 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 wanted to name that old language and so he called it that is the language which uses this for intimate personal pronoun therefore he called it an aryan language now through the 19th century uh, european linguists felt that aryans were people a stock of people Hmm. Uh, who must have emerged somewhere of course it is a fact that the sanskrit came to india from the eurasian steppes but uh, it is not as if one group of people brought it uh, it is one technology of a horse driven cart on which one can stand and throw arrows at great speeds this was a technology which was evolving uh, uh, in this second millennium before christ and because of that the, the hordes of people who came with that technology from this uh, eurasian steppes are a very vast area they came from mitanni they came from sintasta they came from uh, akadia uh, akadian empire uh, civilization so uh, william jones of the late 18th century said these are indo aryan languages and so arya was misunderstood as name of a group of people in the 19th century people started looking at the original home of the aryas even lokmanya tilak wrote a book on the original home of aryas and this original home of aryas uh, was uh, sometimes uh, indicated uh, as in uh, one of the nordic countries sometimes uh, in the, just in uh, german northern border of germany and so on later a german philosopher uh, turned this into some kind of political argument which came handy for adolf hitler to talk of the pure aryan blood which which got sullied which got polluted when the aryans went down to asia and became weak and therefore defeated and therefore slaves of other countries and therefore germans must uh, under hitler's leadership uh, preserve that pure aryan blood uh, take all the impure blood out so the gypsies the uh, poles the jews uh, communists <laughs> all <laughs> to be butchered it was a crazy idea it caused tremendous tragedy to humans 
and uh, it is beginning to create new uh, uh, new uh, avenues of tragedy uh, in the name of the sanskrit language the aryan language yes that's where i was headed misunderstandings in the field of knowledge can cause greater uh, havoc than nature plays misunderstanding also manipulation manipulation of course indeed manipulation you're right and this brings us to uh, your current project in your book the indians histories of a civilization and i look forward to meeting you professor and professor ravi kori satar at our live session at blossom book house tomorrow in bangalore you have spoken about uh your life's work being reactions to things around you politically and a similar trigger was the reason for this mammoth project the indians civilization of a history a wonderful compendium of over 100 essays by over 100 scholars spanning the history of the peoples of india right from the ice age to the present day and i have spent the last week in its thrall and rather than my asking you a bunch of questions about the book why don't you lay out for us what the indians histories of a civilization is about yeah uh yeah, book, the book is uh, i'm very happy it's very well received so far that is for sure in our looking at the past the problem was uh, one group of scholars of the past for them history stops at gautam buddha or ashoka another group of scholars looks at a period which is prior to that proto history where archaeology be- and oral traditions become the means of making sense of that time mm-hmm. and a third group of scholars looks at prehistory uh, where they look at bones genes stone tools climate and uh, history of seeds agricultural history i thought it would be good to bring the three communities together and tell the story beginning with prehistory getting into proto history moving on to history in a way uh, that makes a, a single stream of many stories the occasion of uh, looking at uh, this this large period of the past uh, was uh, the government's desire to look at the last 12000 years of indian past mm-hmm. now so one may ask why 12000 years why not 10000 years or 15000 years the answer is the holocene sets in about 10400 or 500 years before christ that's about 12000 years before our time so since the holocene was a major climatic uh, uh, in a uh, climatic uh, phenomenon uh, which allowed life to grow and uh, so the, so the, the government wanted to look at india since holocene so i thought why don't we look at india since holocene and even india before the holocene because there have been uh, a, 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 there have been uh, shifts between glacials and uh, warming up periods in the past of the a very uh, for a very long time almost I mean, lakhs of years that that large uh, period is called pleistocene but that would that would have been too huge to talk about then uh, one would have to be talking about the growth of amoeba in india growth of grasses in india growth of fish in india some day one should do it because they deserve uh, greater attention than we do <laughs> india belongs to them more really than it belongs to me and you we came we are the interlopers we came later 
we claimed it. <laughs> anyway, uh, this was the occasion, and the government's committee was very myopic. Uh, it was very screwed. Uh, the, the, uh, it had uh, uh, not uh, full representation of Sikhs, Parsis, Christians, Jews, Jains, Muslims, uh, Sufis, Dalits, women, South Indians, North Northeastern people. So I thought if a story has to be told, uh, let it be told truthfully, because truth has a great power to fight propaganda. Truth may be very quietly said. It, it may be said very meekly. There may be only one person speaking truth. Propaganda may be loud, noisy, thunderous, and uh, being uh, uh, pandered by a million but one person speaking truth can counter it. But that's what I learned from Mahatma Gandhi and Ambedkar. We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Now to return to a more romantic subject, the love of words. In his wonderful essay in Caravan, the writer Kaushik Markand quoted Naipaul's words to play with while writing about you. Specifically, Naipaul wrote, My taste for literature had developed into a love of language, the word in isolation. I think uh, I was looking uh, with utmost empathy at every word that I heard, or I used to uh, get to the bottom of from where has it come, who must have made it, how was it used the last time it was used by somebody. So often I imagine, stupidly, if I spoke a word which came out of my mouth, I, I, I thought, I used to think as a child of six, seven, eight, nine years old, that this word was in somebody else's mouth I don't know who this person is. Uh, I was trying to see if there is a, a kind of a connection between those all those people whom I don't know, whether this word is connecting me with all those people, whether the word is the hermeneutical formation of the world. Of course, these heavy uh, words I did not know when I was a school child or college-going child. But uh, I recall my sentiments with clarity, uh, and they amounted to this kind of curiosity. And that is the curiosity that has occupied your whole career. Now, about computers and language, in an interview some years ago, you said that uh, computers will never be able to take over the human ability for metaphor and irony. Do you still feel the same way after ChatGPT? Humans have been in the business of using language for the last 70,000 years. And for about the first 68,000 years, the humans were obsessed with the idea of parables. For the last 2,000 years, 
humans are obsessed with the idea of paradox they're trying to come to terms with paradox interesting uh, in uh, the uh, the paradox between substance and shadow as the greeks were trying to see if the two could be brought together yes they did not understand if shadow is true or substance is true which is less true which is more true Uh, for quite some time, uh, humans will struggle with uh, paradox, and it is then that they will get into a civilization of metaphors. Mm-hmm. Metaphor is a growing uh, business of language, a method of remembering large chunk of experience as compressed in a small, I mean, semantic unit. Mm-hmm. That is metaphor. Right. Um, and uh, so uh, for for hundreds and thousands of years humans will cope with metaphor uh, eventually before uh, getting to know what this existence is all about what it is surrounded by so initially we created parable then we got into paradox and now we are moving towards metaphor uh, the artificial chip will uh, eliminate parable it will eliminate paradox but it will uh, become conducive uh, in time to come to use of metaphor use of signage of a strange kind uh, use of uh, a metaphor is a sign of a thing which is unrelated to the thing in any possible way that's a metaphor so we're going to those kind of signs we we are uh, walking the path of the likes <laughs> and the uh, smileys or whatever it is called emojis that's uh, these are these are regular uh, these are small grains of large metaphors which will emerge as major philosophies of existence in future i have not heard the role and the impact of chat gpt expressed quite so eloquently and intellectually as this but to persist on computers my last question Do you suppose that computers can collapse the distance between conscious and subconscious or unconscious thought? Insomnia uh, is a condition uh, that can threaten the existence of the biological existence of the species and a gap between the unconscious and the conscious allows us sleep. Otherwise if the gap is reduced completely we will become sleepless. already our cities are insomniac our cities do not go to sleep so this uh, this uh, reducing the gap between the unconscious and the conscious will bar a thing called dreams from our life and uh, if humans have no dreams their sanity stands threatened uh, after all freud's uh, idea of insanity is related deeply related to how the mind uh, handles dreams as a committed and long suffering insomniac that doesn't make me feel too good but i'm talking to a person who doesn't look like he sleeps much so professor you've done all this in your life but i don't see you stopping so please what's next what's the next mammoth project i'm sure you have one uh, there is a new attention to the idea of civilization how now this started about 30 years 30 years back mm mm-hmm. an american foreign policy uh, advisor to the president wrote a book called clash of civilizations samuel huntington this was in 19 yes yes samuel huntington and this was immediately after the fall of the berlin wall mrs thatcher's economics had settled after three terms of rule there and russia had given up 
and uh, perestroika glasnost the world had become non polar not unipolar the world had become non polar at that time that time america posited positioned the idea of clash of civilizations as the road forward for its foreign policy and then what happened was iraq iran afghanistan and uh, uh, the uh, islamic countries got uh, demonized and everybody in those countries started looking like a terrorist which was not factually correct uh, i would like this uh, stereotype of crusades over the last 1000 years needs to be fought it is not as if every christian in uh, spain and portugal was marching into uh, syria and turkey and fighting every muslim uh, coming from the south no no there was lot of exchange lot of give and take lot of uh, spread migrations uh, learning from each other enriching each other the confluence not clash uh, so i want to go for a thousand years bracket of time and look at all the 54 or 52 nations from syria or turkey to japan and russia to singapore to see how asian civilizations behaved in the last 1000 years and if we were to do uh, a good summary of that and also translate it into most asian languages from japanese korean arabic persian and european languages the world will have a different view of the world this is the thing i want to do if i have time i mean uh, i don't know I, i don't believe in insurance but i don't know how much time i have here but so long as i have that time i want to do this and change the self image of the people who who uh, who stand dehumanized today what a phenomenal project thank you uh, how many years and how many people will it take 7 to 8 years 7 to 8 years about 4000 persons involved in it and 200 books coming out of it more part your elbow and i cannot wait for that project to be over so i can get my hands on those volumes I'm sure I echo the sentiments of a lot of people when I say that a conversation with you leaves one the richer for it. Professor Ganesh Devi, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Literary City. Thank you so much. I mean, thank you uh, in the first place for reading so much and uh, I cannot forgive myself for seeing you go through uh, that punishment no punishment but thank you so much indeed i value your generosity and i value your empathy thank you indeed you've been listening to the remarkable professor ganesh devi co-author of the book the indians histories of a civilization there's a link in the podcast description to where you can buy a copy of the book but as always Don't forget to check with your local bookstore. And I'll be back with that fun segment What's that word where we look at words and phrases that we use all the time but never stop to think about. This is What's that word and here she is, my co-host. Hello. My name is Pranati, but you can call me P. That's P with an A. not another e and greetings to you p with an a 
Have you good tidings? The good tidings is about Professor Devi. What a wonderful interview. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Not just this one, uh, the live session mm-hmm. at Blossom Bookhouse yesterday. It was just enchanting. I mean, did you have fun? You and the professors Ganesh Devi and Ravi Kori Setter looked like you were having a great time. Well, I did. Professor Devi uh, said he did too. I'm sure that uh, Professor Kori Setter did. Well, what was your takeaway from all that? That I know flat nothing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know now that I know less than I thought I know. Is that clear? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I asked for that. But now during the live session, do you remember Professor Devi asked you the etymology of the word crowd? Of course. And then he broke down the word mob for us. Yes, he did. And I thought, that's today's word or words. Splendid. Now, you know, uh, I guess everyone knows the meaning of the word crowd. Yes, commonly used. But the origin, the way Professor Devi said it, is very interesting. But I would like you to go more in depth and tell me about how these two are related, you know, in etymology, of course. But first, I'll start with what Professor Devi said. Go right ahead. Yeah. So when you asked if he crowdsourced his PLSI project, he <laughs> laughed and held up his mobile phone and then <laughs> talked about how the word mob has its root in a mass of people moving from one place to another and then explained how a mob is exactly that, you know, a mobile bunch of folks. And mm. I'll add that they're not always well-intentioned. A well-intentioned mob. Now there's an invention. <laughs> right. But now to the word crowd. Let's get to the etymology, please. Sure. You know, I I discovered the word crowd is very interesting. It's related in many ways to mob and to a few surprising variations on the theme. Mm, that sounds promising. It is. Okay, first, crowd. It has P-I-E, Proto-Indo-European, roots. And the origin is Groot or Groot. And then it became, in, in Old English, the word Cruden, C-R-U-D-A-N. Now, just remember that word, the root, Cruden. Okay, but cruden sounds like crowd, but do they mean the same thing? Yes, in a sense. Uh, the literal translation of cruden is to crush or to press. And then it came in closer in Middle English as crowden, a crush or press of people crowding together, you see? Mm, ah, I see. Well, see this. There's another take on the word. Within the word crowd, C-R-O-W-D, is row, R-O-W. And a row originally signified a row of people. And another meaning for row is row, as in, she caused an awful row when her services were terminated. Hey. <laughs> she, not you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what a relief. So, crowd, row, and row. Equals? Unruly mob. <laughs> yes. So here's another twist that should become obvious. Rowdy. Mm, wow, how fascinating. So we have crowd, row, and rowdy, and mob. Yeah. So while mob has negative connotations, crowd does not. Well, yes and no. You see, crowd doesn't have the negative connotation of a mob in terms of describing violence. But you see, the word crowd 
has always been used to describe a group of people of a lower order of society, or in Latin, the vulgar. Now, if you let your etymological mind wander a little, you will arrive at a new relationship, and that is the word crude. Okay, this is getting better and better. (laughs) Now, etymologists will argue that crude comes from the Latin crudus, which is raw, you know, uncooked. In English, crude is used to describe something that is sort of unrefined, lacking refinement, you know, or being unpolished. So make the connection in a human way. Crowd is the vulgar, and the lower order of society was considered unrefined, unpolished, or crude. This is fascinating. You know, I knew (laughs) this would be fun. So while crowd, row, row, mob, and crude, each has its distinct etymology, their paths cross. Hmm. Maybe in the Socratic town square that Professor Davy spoke of yesterday in the live session. <laughs> yes, but you did forget one word. I did. Sorry, which? Rowdy. Yes, of course. Okay, and rowdy. Yeah, and you know what? Hmm? That's... Yeah, I, I know what. That's where you're headed this evening, to a most rowdy bar where you will bibulate crude beverages. <laughs> With two-fisted vulgarity. Oh? Wait, that didn't come out right. No, sorry. As the saying goes, you break it. I bought it. I'm off. Bye. And that is our show. I'd like to thank my guest, Professor Ganesh Devi, and my co-host, Pranati P. with an A, Madhav, and all of you for listening, for writing in, and especially for sharing every episode with so many people. Thank you so, so much. So until I'm back with another episode of The Literary City, here's wishing you a wonderful time.